Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, as Alicia said, my name is Josh Cepeda. I'm a uh, member here at Hope Brooklyn, and one of the resident Brooklynites in our community. I, my, my, my family and I moved to Brooklyn from Spanish Harlem when I was five years old. Uh, and I grew up in the Midwood Flatbush neighborhood of Brooklyn, I own, not too far from some of the best pizza you have in New York, the Forest Pizza on Avenue J and 15th. Um, yeah, we went there a lot as kids, me and our brother. Uh, it used to be really cheap, not anymore. <laughs> but, um, but I'm so excited and privileged to be here to speak with you today. Um, as you notice, we are in Summer Sabbath, like Alicia said, and interestingly enough, that Summer Sabbath has even affected our sermons. If you've been with us for uh, the last few weeks, you know that we're not in a sermon series right now. We're kind of willy-nilly. You're coming along for whatever ride we're bringing you on. And uh, the prompt I was given was to pick my favorite story uh, of Jesus or any sermon that I've been really wanting to preach. And so I left meeting with Russell and I said, oh man, I got the right story. I know exactly what I'm going to do. And what is typical of me is two-thirds into my prep, I don't think I have the right story. My perfectionism creeps in. I don't know if any perfectionists in the room, but I start to get really anxious and worried that I picked the wrong topic, I'm using the wrong analogies, I'm, I'm just saying the wrong thing. And nine times out of 10, it is my perfectionism and I'm working on, on shutting that down. But there are times, and I think this is one of them, I hope it's one of them, where I feel the, that God is calling me to stop and self-evaluate and more importantly, just listen. The prompt that was given was the story I wanted to tell, and I really felt that God was asking me to listen to the story he's been telling, to look around what was, going around, uh, what was happening in my life the last few months and listen to the story that he's been telling. And so I did, and I noticed that there was one passage of Scripture, literally one verse, that kept coming up over and over in conversations where I was talking with a coworker who had recently heard news that one of her children might be diagnosed with a terminal illness, whether I was talking to a friend who was sharing some issues at home, or whether I was talking to a family member who made a big decision, had a lot of great things coming along their way, and then it all fell, under their, uh, fell out from under their feet, and things weren't working out the same. One verse, one passage of Scripture kept coming up over and over again, and it's in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, These things I have said to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. My sermon this morning I call a real gospel. And I don't use the word real to mean authentic versus something fake. That's a sermon for another time. I use the word real to mean that which is the most straightforward, that which is the most truthful and honest, a gospel that keeps it real. Because to me, this humble preacher, there's no other passage in Jesus' gospel where you'll find a more straightforward, or as Jesus puts it, a more plainly spoken gospel than this one right here. In this gospel, Jesus says three things straightforward. He talks about the world. He speaks plainly to us about himself. And finally, he speaks plainly about us. And so that's my journey this morning, to share this real gospel that I, I've been hearing around me, that I've been seeing in the lives of people around me. And I pray it'll encourage you this morning. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you this morning for good news, that you came to bring good news. And so, Father, I pray that your gospel would be good news this morning, that you would remind us who maybe have forgotten, that you would call to us who are wrestling with it, that you'd open eyes of those who've never seen it, that we would see this gospel, 
straightforward, plainly spoken by your son Jesus. Would you help me communicate that this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. A real gospel. Okay. As I said, Jesus says three things in this uh, one statement that I want to talk about. The first being the truth about the world or his straightforwardness or plainly spoken truth about the world. That in the world, you will have tribulation. Or to be more plainly spoken, in the world, you'll have great cause for distress. And I don't think anybody in this room would have a problem with that statement right there. Because when we look out into the world, we see great causes for distress. We look out to the world and we get anxious, we get nervous, we get insecure, we get afraid, we get angry, we get sad. The world is troublesome, there's no doubt about it. And I don't think any one of us has a problem with that. But that's not what Jesus is being real about here when he's talking about the world. What Jesus is being real about is he's talking about our relationship to the world. He's sure about something about you and me. And it's that in this world, you and I will have tribulation. That you and I will deal with suffering. Because for most of us, I'm sure, we look at these troubles in the world and we see them as just out there. There's just something that, that's out there trying to get me. I got to navigate around it. I got to figure out ways to, to bypass it, to overcome it. But Jesus doesn't say that here. He doesn't say that the world has troubles. He says in the world, you will have them too. The troubles hit close to home. Tribulations are present with us. In uh, Mike Cosper's book, The Stories We Tell, he talks about how movies and TV shows echo great truths, echo truths that we long for. And one of those truths is this one, that tribulation or evil is present with us. And he has a chapter in this book called Shadows and Darkness where he actually talks about horror films. He calls them judgment films. Because he says the appeal of these movies is that we're going to see some great evil, sure, but that it's going to be put away. That our hope is that by the end of the movie, we'll see evil judged. We'll see tribulations end. But there's a twist to this genre, Mike Cosper notes, that more often than not, whether we are told directly by the movie or whether we have an implication in ourselves, we leave feeling like evil's not been put away. Evil hasn't ended. If you're fans of the Netflix show Stranger Things, I'm not going to talk about season three. No season three. Um, I have seen it, though. It's amazing. Um, but if you've watched the show, you know the stories about these young people and this tribulations that they encounter, this evil that's in the world. And seasons one and two, they see how big the problem is. It's bigger than they thought in season one. In season two, they, they are left with this feeling that we've done it. We've dealt with it. But as you come to find out, it isn't a way. It isn't, hasn't been dealt with. It's still present, looming, watching over them. Mike Cosper says that the reason why there's that twist is because when the lights come on and the movie's over and we come back to our real world, that idea that everything's going to be tied up and put to rest doesn't gel with our understanding of a chaotic world. This is how he puts it in his book. I should have bookmarked the page. No, I know where it is. Um, in our dark and broken world, we rarely get easy answers. The darkness we witness is rarely answered in a satisfying manner. A killer might be tried and convicted. We might send ghost hunters out looking for the monsters, and we might solve the occasional mystery. But the conclusions are inevitably met by new mysteries, new horrors that happen every day. We remain in a world where the darkness continues to simmer, in cities and towns full of craven appetites and landscapes full of mystery. We tell these stories because they resonate with our sense that something is out there. Tribulations are present with us. And if you're honest, that thought is uncomfortable but it's no less true. 
if all of us, if many of us were to lay out the record of our life, I think our life would bear witness to that reality that at one point or another, whether we liked it or not, whether we expected it or not, we all had tribulation. The troubles in the world weren't just troubles out there, they became mine. Jesus keeps it real here, a little too real. Because sometimes we don't want to admit that when we go out there, we'll encounter these troubles. But Jesus says that they're ours, that we will have them. But that's not the only thing he's honest about. He's also honest about himself. Right after this, he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The interesting thing about Jesus in this statement is that right now, he's at the Last Supper. He's at the table. They've had the meal. He's broken the bread. They drank the wine. And Jesus is talking to them as he normally does about things to come, about, you know, encouragements and wisdom. And the disciples, as usual, are very confused. They have no idea really what Jesus is talking about. In fact, if you read uh, chapter 16, you'll see that at one point they say, we have no idea what he's talking about. But Jesus makes this statement, I have overcome the world. And then in 17, he's going to pray for them and then he's going to leave. And I can imagine the disciples hearing this statement. I mean, they believed in him as Messiah. They believed in him as their savior, as their king. And they're going to watch as they leave the table, go to Gethsemane, and they're going to see him betrayed, arrested, beaten, and ultimately crucified. The one who had just told them, I have overcome the world, the one who they say, yeah, we, this is the one, is going to be overcome. Why would Jesus say something like that? And how hard it must have been for the disciples. I mean, no place, I think, is it more vivid or difficult to watch in the gospel story, in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, than it is when Jesus is being beaten before he's crucified. Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, 27 through uh, 31, puts it this way. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. I can only imagine the disciples, the one who was to be overcome. Not only is he arrested being, but he's, he's mocked. It's a joke. I was born in 89, so I'm a 90s kid. And one of my favorite movies growing up was Three Ninjas. Favorite movie. And uh, it's the story of three brothers who are taught how to be ninjas by their Japanese grandfather. And in the process of the story, they get caught up in some issues and they get taken captive. And in the movie, at the end, the climax, they, they fight their way out. But there comes a point in the movie where they're overcome. Too many guys, and they're worried, they're nervous. They're, they're willing to fight, but they're nervous. And it's at that moment that their grandfather shows up. Their mentor, their hero, their savior, he shows up, and in fantastical fashion, slow-mos and everything, the guy flips off, I don't know how high a, a ledge, and he lands right in front of him. Picture perfect. And they're filled with courage and excitement. They're ready to go. Our savior's here. But at that moment, the villain appears. And the grandfather realizes there's only one way we're going to get out of here. He says, I have to fight him. And he makes a deal. I'll fight you, let my grandchildren go. And the grandchildren watch then as the grandfather gets mercilessly beaten. I mean, even as a kid, I used to watch the scene and, and it used to really, really affect me. Because you see him getting pummeled and beat and the children, the camera pants to them and in slow-mo you hear them yelling, stop, no, you're going to kill him. But the enemy doesn't stop. And at one moment, he gives us this, he just hits him hard. 
and he falls down limp. And the camera pans to the boys and you see them each clasp their hands and bow their heads. Their hero, their savior, the one who showed up, who had, they were just filled with great confidence, has been overcome. I can't imagine the disciples of Jesus seeing this or seeing their savior like this. Just 12 hours ago, he said he would overcome and he's been overcome. But there's something else in that passage that even echoes that even stronger. And it's that crown of thorns. The image of a crown of thorns. You see, thorns in the biblical narrative are a reminder of our tribulations, of the troubles that are present with us. Because they point back to Genesis. They point back to the beginning when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when they sinned against God, when they exchanged the peace and the relationship and the rest they had in God for the tribulations of this world. They heard the deceptive words of a serpent and they believed it. And all he did was fill them with great cause of distress. He questioned God's words and they were filled with anxiety, filled with fear maybe, filled with insecurity. And rather than resting in Jesus they, and resting in God, they chose the serpent's words. And God shows up and this is what he says to them in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. God tells Adam and Eve, now life is a life of pain. In pain you shall eat, he says. And a reminder of that is the thorns, that thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. At that moment, right at the, the beginning of, of, of history, God tells them that thorns and thistles, tribulations are for you. We go through this life sometimes thinking, if I can just avoid these problems, that my job is to navigate them. But God says, no, thorns aren't something to, that are in the way. They're your reward. They're not a reminder of what we have to overcome. They're a reminder that we ourselves have been overcome. Thorns are everywhere. We can't escape them. So when you come back to Jesus and you see him being mocked and being, and you see that crown of thorns in the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson chooses to show the, the Roman soldiers actually pushing the crown of thorns into Jesus. It's a strong analogy when you realize that these thorns represent our tribulations, the, the things that overcome us, that we will be overcome. Our Savior himself couldn't escape that. He himself was wrapped up in thorns. I learned something really interesting about thorns as I was preparing for this. I learned that not every plant that can prick you is a thorn. There's a difference between thorns and plants that have spines and prickles. Roses, for example, that's not a thorn. Shocking, mind-blowing. <laughs> but what's interesting about thorns is that plants that do produce thorns, when they appear in a flower bed, they quite literally choke all the other plants out. Because all the other vegetation has to fight against the thorns for the water and nutrients in the soil. Thorns are an aggressive plant. Some of them actually have vines that actually will wrap around other plants and literally choke them. So when we come to Jesus being beaten and we look and we see him with a crown of thorns, the thorns have wrapped themselves around our Savior. They're quite literally choking the life out of him. Jesus couldn't escape the thorns. The juxtaposition between Jesus' statement 12 hours before that I've overcome the world and this moment right now is immense. He not only has been overcome by the world, but even our curse, our tribulations, the thorns that were meant for us, Jesus couldn't even escape those. They wrapped themselves around him. But thank God that that's not the end of the story. Yes, the thorns do take Jesus to the grave, but Jesus doesn't stay there. 
In three days, Jesus rises from the grave. The disciples see him. They spend time with him. Forty days, he's with them. And then they watch him ascend. And then something happens to the disciples. They remember something. Maybe Jesus said it to them. Maybe they heard it growing up in the synagogue, a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. One of the Psalms, Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6, where the psalmist writes about one who is crowned with glory and honor, whom God gives dominion over the entire world, who God puts all things under his feet. And the disciples realize this is Jesus, not simply because he rose from the dead, but because they realize that Jesus died bearing the tribulations of the world. They took him down and they couldn't keep him down. Though he endured the thorns, literally wore them on his head, they couldn't hold him down. That, they realize, is great power. And so I, there's no better place to see it than when Paul talks in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, he's praying for, his, uh, for the uh, Christians in Ephesus, and he's praying that they would know great power, the great power of God. And this is what, how he describes that great power, Ephesians 1, 19 through 22. He says, this power God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in the age, this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. That truth marveled the, the, the early Christians. They talk about it everywhere in the New Testament. He put all things under his feet. Jesus has all things under his feet, not simply because he died and rose again, but because he endured the thorns. He didn't escape. The realness about this gospel is that it is not escapism. We are not presenting to you a form of how to navigate and escape the world. We're telling you that you will endure tribulation. It's for you. Tribulations are present with you. But there is one who is also present. And he endures tribulation. He has suffered. But what he produces is vastly different than what we've produced. That word overcome literally means to successfully deal with a problem. See, we deal with tribulations all the time. But Jesus successfully deals with them. He's found a way to overcome them. Thorns, Jesus doesn't produce thorns, he produces something else. Interesting, Paul, a few verses before this in Ephesians, calls Jesus the first fruits, and that's a harvest metaphor. That's a reference to the first crop of a harvest. It's actually the first evidence of a farmer's good labor. You want to know if you labored as a farmer well, you got to see the first fruits. See what comes up. You'll, that'll let you know if you have a good harvest. I can't help but think of the parallel. That God tells Adam that when you go into the ground, thorns are going to come from you. But when God works the ground, when Jesus works, what, what does he produce? He produces life and peace. And this brings us to the last thing that Jesus is real about. He's real about us. Right in the beginning, verse 33, he says, I've said these things that in me you may have peace. Now, I put this point last, though it's first in the, in the lineup in the, in the actual verse, because I don't want us to get caught up with our perception of peace. See, when we think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict. That is not what Jesus is offering here. Jesus is not saying you can have my peace or the world's. We do stuff like that. Either come with me or deal with it on your own. That's not what Jesus offers. It's not the absence of conflict that he's presenting. Also, because he says this before, enduring pain, enduring suffering. Jesus isn't giving a false promise. He's not gambling on this. He says this with great certainty. Though the disciples didn't know what was going to happen, Jesus knew. And so he says to them, this things I've said that you may have peace, not the absence of conflict, but peace in the way that the real, the word in Hebrew, shalom, or the Greek, irene, means peace that is wholesome, 
peace that it rebuilds, that restores. What Jesus offers us is restoration. Restoration to what? Restoration to that which was lost. The reason why the tribulations are so trialsome is because they tug on the strings of our heart and they remind us that we don't know what's going on in the world. We're not insecure. We're unsure. Things don't work out the way we do. God promises that we left his protection. We left his security. And he says, if you're in me, you may have peace. Notice that in me, peace isn't found unless it's in a relationship with Jesus. He reminds us that what we've been seeking all along is him. Oftentimes, you know, we think what we need is better ideas. We've spoken a lot this year about the way of Jesus, the politics of Jesus, and that's all great. They're wonderful truths. They're true. Yes, they are. But don't be deceived. If you think that we're talking about just philosophy here, no, we're not saying trust philosophy. We're saying trust a person. Our hope is not in ideas. Our hope is in Jesus, the person. In him, we have peace. Just a few verses uh, before this, in chapter 15, he uses this beautiful metaphor of a vine and its branches, and he tells his disciples, abide in me and I in you, and you'll bear much fruit. He says the same thing here in verse 33, uh, chapter 16, just more plainly, in me you have peace. You won't find it anywhere else. The relationship we've always sought for is the one with him. We see a Savior who not only is present in the world, but suffers with us. We don't suffer alone. Though tribulation is present with us, our Savior is present too. And if he has endured, if he's taken the thorns on him, if he's endured the tribulations and he's come out on the other side, he says to us, in me, you'll have this peace that you will come out on the other side. This is not just belief in an idea, but belief in a person. Brendan Manning wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. It's a phenomenal book. And in it, he talks about this difference of belief in, in something versus belief in a person. I love how he says it. He says, the difference between faith as a belief in something that may or may not exist and faith as trusting God is enormous. The first is a matter of the head. The second, a matter of the heart. The first can leave us unchanged. The second intrinsically brings change. Everything you see here, the worship, the signs, the, the volunteers, the sermon, all this was done because we've encountered not an idea, but a person. We've been intrinsically transformed and changed. Peace has come into our lives because of a person. And all this was done, just as Jesus said, that you may have peace. I want to invite the band up. We're going to take communion. And what I find so interesting about taking communion right now is that it's at that very table that Jesus says these same words. And that Jesus said these words to his disciples, the same words he says to us. He came, he spoke, he did all these things that we might have peace. All of us endure tribulation. If you haven't, God bless you but it's, it hurts me to say it, but you will. That's a hard reality. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't pull any punches. He tells us the truth. You will suffer, but you will not suffer alone. He says, in me, you have peace.
communion. What an awesome reminder. I'm going to invite those who serve in communion to come up. Some instructions for communion. Parents, if you want your children to join you, you're more than welcome. They'll be upstairs in their classroom, and you can take communion as a family. It'd be great. Otherwise, remember to please pick up your kids after service. There are four communion stations, two in the front, two in the back. Whichever is closest to you, please go to. Or whichever one has the shortest line. The elements are vegan and gluten-free. You can dip them in the bread and the juice. Take the bread, dip it in the juice, and then you can partake of it as you choose. And last but not least, and I love this part, the table is a symbol of our heart's confession that Jesus is Lord and open to all free of cost. Would you stand as I pray and we take communion together? God, God, I thank you. It's a mystery to me why you would do all these things just for us, but oh God, I'm so grateful you did. You came that we might have peace. I'm so grateful that you didn't lie to us, Lord. This world is troublesome, and those troublesomes come close to home. We've endured them. We suffer them on a daily basis. We know deep in our heart it's out there. But you wanted us to know as well that you are there as well. God, I pray that we would never forget it, that we would always remember. We would always remember when tribulation comes, we would remember you came, that we might have peace. That because you endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, we can experience joy and life and peace and it's found in you. We're trusting in you, Jesus. Turn our hearts to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.